0: Thank you, Nick. Um, Small plug before we start uh, tonight. I am teaching second week on the book of Ruth to our teenagers, uh, junior high and high school students. So um, Jessica, our children's and youth director, and I had talked about it and we just said uh, we would like to extend the invitation to any parents Of junior high and high school uh, youth. If you guys want to come out, um, Bethany and I actually will both be there. And then after we're done um, walking through chapter two of Ruth, uh, we're just going to sit down and chat as parents. So um, if you're curious about that, just make sure uh, that you're marking your calendars. Youth starts at six um, and goes to eight. So uh, we'd love to have you there. Um, Going through the front door, take a right, um, go down the hallway, go up the stairs that are sketchy at best, and then you'll see... (laughs) uh, uh, our, our youth rooms up there, and we would love to have you there. Um, so just a small plug in that regard. We are in uh, Genesis chapter 4, so if you would, open up your Bibles or electronic devices that have a Bible on it. Genesis being the first book of the Bible. And um, I'm sure you're looking at it and you're saying, are we really going to tackle uh, two Uh, chapters today. Um, Yeah, I'm just going to wheel in a chair. I'm going to sit. We're going to read scripture. It'll be a good time. Um, I'm not going to read you all of this scripture. I'm just going to hit on a a few verses. And we have been um, uh, unpacking Genesis, and we want to kind of give you a summary, if you have not been with us, of what happened in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And then you can go back and you can um, check out our messages, communitygospelchurch.com. And you can look at the messages section, and they're all posted there. Last week, we had some tech issues, so I had a little second service at my house, and I recorded it uh, for you. So if you didn't get Genesis chapter 2, that content is available um, on our website, so make sure that you pick that up. Genesis, as well as the other four, uh, first five books of the Bible, are written by a man named Moses. You know Moses. Moses is the one who uh, declares to Pharaoh, let my people go, right, right? Um, And he is our author, and he has already articulated creation in regards to the world, and the history of humanity. So Genesis chapter 1 deals with creation of the world. Uh, Elohim, or God, as it says in the English version of the text, the Hebrew in the Old Testament, Elohim is a triune God. It is three in one. So you'll hear me say that over and over again in the book of Genesis when it deals with our creator. Another name for God is Elohim. And Elohim creates the world in six literal days, six 24-hour days, and he rests on the seventh. On the sixth day, Elohim creates humans. So we have Adam, he is the first man, and then you have Eve, the first woman. And we said Adam calls Eve woman because he sees her for the first time and he says, whoa, man. (laughs) For those of you who weren't here last week, it was funnier, last week. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are placed in a garden called the Garden of Eden, and they're given dominion over the earth. It switches from Elohim God to Elohim Yahweh, or the Lord God, the covenant God of Israel. And he commands, same God, Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two trees. There's a tree of life, and then there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are said to be in harmony with one another. And um, in Genesis chapter 3, here comes a serpent, which is Satan. We learned that from Revelation. He tempts Eve to eat from the tree, and she gives some of the fruit to Adam. So you might not understand that, but when Adam and Eve are tempted in the garden, they are right next to each other. It's important for us to, to make that distinction. A lot of people, when they unpack Genesis, they think that Adam's off somewhere else doing something else, but he is right next to her the entire time. And um, he eats as well as um, her, and we have this act of disobedience called. The fall. Now, after eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve become aware of their sin. They realize that they're naked in the garden. They sow fig leaves to cover themselves, and they hide from God. And because of their sin, God dishes out some curses upon not only the serpent, but also Eve and then Adam, and we talked about that. They're banished from the garden, prevented from uh, eating of the tree of life, and they become mortal. So uh, while Adam and Eve are introduced to death, God provides for them. He provides for them better garments. He covers them with loincloths. And those chapters, chapter 1, 2, and 3, set the stage for the rest of our study. I contemplated not re-recording chapter 2. Uh, as a matter of fact, I stood in the refrigerator, had a conversation with God. I wasn't in the actual refrigerator. I was getting something out of the refrigerator. And um, I just was like, Genesis chapter uh, 2 and 3 are just so crucial for understanding the rest of the text. So if you haven't punched in and and walked through that, please, please do um, make sure that you you hit that. Because here are these themes coming to life. Sin, redemption, God's plan for humanity. And really what we're about to kind of go down is two paths that all humans take. Either you're going to choose a path of faith and trust in the Lord. Or you're going to choose following yourself and that's going to lead to wickedness. That is the whole outline Of Genesis after the fall. Man either choosing himself or choosing his creator. So let's look at Genesis chapter four and let's just look at the first two verses of Genesis chapter four. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, Big numbers are going to be the uh, verses or chapters, and little numbers are going to be the verses. Now, Adam knew his wife. If you don't know what that means, ask somebody sitting next to you. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, two kids, Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain is the worker of the ground. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to circle the word new in the first verse. Because that word new means lay with. It is the most intimate, holy relationship between a husband and a wife. Between a husband and a wife. Knowing also is never used of the animal kingdom. It is different, it is distinct from all other animals. Eve gives birth to Cain. Cain's name means acquire or possess, and she calls him a man, which is interesting because he doesn't come out as a fully grown man. But the Hebrew term for mature male is man. So she sees him as a man. And this will show that while a woman originally came from a man, now things are reversed because of the fall. A man will now originate from woman and what that shows is the sexes are mutually dependent upon one another and both are going to be dependent upon God paul unpacks this in 1st corinthians chapter 11 so really this hits on like diversity and gender issues that are transpiring in our world i mean it just screams into all of those things. Now notice, this is interesting, Eve declares that she obtained Cain with the help of the Lord, and that is L-O-R-D, the, for all capitals, that is a new name of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. That's his first use of his covenant name. But she doesn't give full credit to the Lord. She says, I did it with the help of the Lord, or she says, I have. Now this, if you were reading this in um, Moses's time, was an indicator that Cain's life and his line would be littered with problems. So he's kind of like one that is going to have all of these issues. She also gives birth to Abel, and his his name means vapor or breath, which foreshadows his life because we know it's going to be short. He fulfills Elohim's mandate uh, in chapter 1, verse 26, to manage the earth's resources. Now, both of these boys, both these boys come, and they want to give offerings. Let's look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel... He also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Wait, what? Why is that the case? Shouldn't he have regard for both of the boys' offerings? Well, both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. Now, the word offering is just the word tribute. This is a way to give back to God what he had given to them. And so they come as priests, essentially, worshiping the same God and desiring his acceptance. This will be true in Leviticus later on down the road. 1 Samuel will talk about it as well. Yahweh had regard, if you look at the text, for, his, for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Well, if you read the text, you understand why. It's not because of faith, Or an absence of blood. It's because Cain brings the fruit of the ground. And there's no mention that it was his best. So we would assume that he brings something that is not his best. He brings something that the Lord would be viewed as seconds. Abel, however, he brings the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. In other words, he brings the best. Now, Cain's sin is what is called tokenism. And tokenism, it looks religious, but in his heart, he's not totally dependent upon Yahweh. This is true for what is transpiring in our world right now. There's a lot of people that look religious, but are not religious. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but don't act like Christians, right? So, same thing happens today. Now, what's the outcome? Second part of verse 5. So Cain was angry. As a matter of fact, he wasn't just angry. It says he was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must first rule over or be disciplined over so that you will not sin. Now Cain wasn't just angry; <laughs> he's very angry. I love when the Bible says like stuff like that. It just like shows us what's happening. So much so that his face fell. It literally showed, or it was apparent. Do you know somebody like this? Right? You just look at him, you're like, "What's wrong?" They're like nothing. You're like, "You're a liar." <laughs> Cain tries to hide his internal thoughts from an omniscient, all-knowing God, but God always knows, doesn't He? God asks Cain why he's angry. You should know why you're angry. It's for the sole reason, ready for this? To give him the opportunity to confess his failure. It's the same question that he asked his mom and dad. It's exactly the same. He has a God conscience of what is right and what is wrong, but he rebels against it. He's acting just like his mother. And so what happens is Yahweh asks the question, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you ask for forgiveness, wouldn't you be accepted? And he demands an answer, but for some unknown reason, Cain refuses to speak. Now this shows us that Cain lacks the kind of faith that pleases God. So God tells Cain he must rule over, and it's the same language from chapter one and chapter two. Specifically, when God looks at Adam and says he would rule over or lead his wife. He says, for example, you are, this is your responsibility. You cannot look at the devil and say, he made me do it. You can't look at your spouse and say, he made me do it. You can't look at your kids, unfortunately, and say, they made me do it, right? It is our responsibility when it comes to sin to be disciplined to make sure that we're honoring the Lord. Now, go to verse 8. So Cain, instead of going to God, notice this, he goes to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he kills him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? More is caught than taught, right? Instead of speaking to Yahweh, Cain goes to his brother Abel, which is the start of the first religious war and also the first sibling rivalry. And it will infect, not just this moment, it will infect the entire family unit in Genesis. Cain killing Abel is irrational behavior and it's unjustifiable jealousy and rage taken out on his brother when really he is mad at God. Church, just let me unpack this for you. There are some people in your life that you have tension with, they're not mad at you. They are mad at God. And they are taking out their aggression on God, on you. And we as believers are called in that instance to turn the other cheek and to love without conditions. Cain denies any responsibility when God asks, where's your brother? It's the exact same response that Adam gave in blaming Eve. Now, what transpires? Verse 10. The Lord said, What have you done? And the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now, your curse from the ground. Here comes another curse because of disobedience. And notice, I cannot help but notice, all of this could have been avoided if there was just forgiveness. If there was just an offering of, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't transpire. It doesn't take place. You are cursed from the ground, verse 11, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. Now, I love Cain's response. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. It's really not that bad if you think about it. Like, I mean, Adam got death. And so here he looks at him and he says, no, this is too big. Behold, verse 14, you have driven me out today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will want to kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord puts a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, uh, young people, this is not a good proof text to get a tattoo. All right? Just throwing that out there. I'll never forget I had a student one time look at me, and they said, oh, see, look, God loves tattoos. That's a bad thing to say, right? God put a mark on Cain. It doesn't say he tattooed him. He didn't sit down in the chair. 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Every time you see east in the Bible, be cautious and concerned. It means going away from instead of going towards. Which is interesting. So Cain fails to give Yahweh an answer. God is outraged and Cain now joins his parents as well as Satan in being cursed from chapter 3 verse 14. He is unable to yield a harvest from the soil and he's a fugitive, a wanderer of the earth that has no home and no security. He's the first hippie if you will. Cain responds with self-pity instead of repentance and he's irrational and he fears death. And Yahweh, notice, in his provision, again, declares no one would take vengeance on Cain. Or if they did, they would experience sevenfold judgment. Now, if you want to, you can underline that in the text. It's a really interesting thing that he says sevenfold judgment. Seven symbolizes a complete cycle. That is a complete cycle of judgment. So not just one, not just two, not just three. It continues over and over again until it is complete he wanders east of Eden. Now a major theme pops up in those first couple of verses and this is the theme. That a life without Yahweh is a dangerous life. It shows us that Cain is choosing to honor himself. And as he's choosing to honor himself, what's happening to his life? He's finding himself frustrated and unfulfilled. And so when we reject the ways of the Lord, we say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And so our Commandment is to be like Abel and reject the ways of Cain. Now, chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to 32 is important. Um, chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 5, 32 is a genealogy or a line of descendants of Cain. <laughs> when we get done with service and you go home and you're eating lunch, you're gonna read these with your family. Okay? And as you read them with your family, you're going to pronounce them confidently and fast, and nobody will know if you got the names right or not. All right? That's how you study the Old Testament. And by the way, if you go home and you read this, kudos to you. You don't have to do that. I'm just throwing that out there. All right? Just like Adam knew Eve, though, Cain also knew his first wife. Now, it's interesting here that Cain's first wife, in verse 17 and 18, uh, is unnamed. It's probably his sister. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, hold on a second. Well, no law yet forbids marrying your sister here. Now, they bear Enoch. Now, this is going to throw you off because Bethany and I were talking about this. Actually, Bethany sent me um, a text message the other day, and she's like, there's not two Enochs in the Bible. And I was like, oh, I'm in good company because when I was studying this, I was like, wait, hold on a second. There's two Enochs in the Bible. I thought there was only one, the one that walked with God and was no longer. But here we see there's two of them, right? So Cain builds the first city, and that word city, if you want to circle that, in verse 17 and 18, is a settlement with walls. Now, this is why this is important. This city is purely earthly, and it's away from Yahweh's presence that would one day challenge God's supremacy in chapter 11, verse 4. Cain continues in his sin to go away from God. Not only does he move locations, not only does he move land, but he also starts to do things that are against the Lord. He says, I know what's best. Remember in Genesis chapter one, when God said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. This is Cain essentially looking at it and saying, God, what you have put into place and declared good, I don't believe it. And so I'm gonna do what I wanna do. That is a sin. All right, to make matters worse, instead of honoring the Lord, Cain credits humanity. He names the city after his son Enoch. Enoch is filled, see if this sounds familiar to you, Enoch is filled with a godless human culture bent on human achievement and loves violence. In this genealogy, we see two different sets of offspring of Adam, which is the same thing that we're getting in the text. We're getting either people who followed themselves or people who chose to honor the Lord. You get Enoch the godly in chapter 5, verse 24. That doesn't need explained. But then you get this guy named Lamech, and he is the ungodly. And let's unpack this just a little bit. In verse 19 through 24, you get this guy named Lamech, and he is ungodly. He is a symbol for sin, for specific sins. Number one, he commits the act of polygamy. Lamech takes for himself two wives. He's like, I don't want one wife, I want two wives. I want my life to be extra frustrating. <laughs> the rejection of God's marital plan in chapter 2, verse 24. It also goes against, even though it hasn't been written yet, Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. Now, polygamy is never affirmed in the Bible. So if you get into anybody who is quote-unquote in a religion who believes in polygamy, it is against God's word. There's never a time in the biblical text where polygamy is looked at as a good thing. He commits a second thing. Some of you guys, farmers here, are going like, to eat me alive for this one, but it, it, it is a problem. He commits this uh, sin called animal husbandry. Now, it doesn't mean he takes animals for a husband, okay? So just like, get your mind out of gutter for a second. <clears throat> Lamech's wife, Adah, had two sons. She had Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. This is what's called animal husbandry. It's a branch of agriculture that involves the breeding, care, and management of livestock. Now, that's acceptable today, right? Like, we, we have that. That happens and transpires. So why is that bad here? Well, Jabel took into his own hands the feeding of himself outside of Yahweh's plants. He's essentially saying, I don't believe that you're going to feed me, so I'm going to go and I'm going to feed myself the way that I want to be fed. That is exactly against, see, you're, you keep going east here. Now, to make matters worse, because the worship team's doing this, like, jam session, like, secular instruments are also out. So, again, before you, like, you know, get mad at me, just watch. This is what's happening. Jabel's brother, Jabal, was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe, and they created all of them in verse 21 of chapter 4. Now, although the lyre and the pipe were invented by the godless, they can still be used later on by the godly to praise Yahweh. So this is like a good case study why I wanted to play guitar instead of piano when I was a kid. All right. But here in the text, essentially, these instruments are used and created so that they can glorify themselves and not God. They never asked. So while well, God utilizes these later on down the road, here this is a big sin because essentially not only are they marrying who they want to marry, they're eating the way that they want to eat, and they're singing their own songs to themselves. To make matters worse, Lamech and his other wife Zilchah bore Tubacain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. That is the secular sciences in verse 22. All of those things go against God's order. To make matters worse, in verse 23 and 24, he starts boasting about murder and he mocks the living God. So this is like a culmination of all the sins. Look at all these people saying, we're going to do what we want to do. Now, here's the crazy thing. Polygamy still exists today. People still go their own way and eat for themselves what they want to eat without inquiring of what is beneficial for them. People still sing songs the way that they want to sing songs to themselves, and people still participate in sciences that are opposing who God is and what God's all about. All those things still happen and transpire today. We could trace them all the way back into Genesis. Nothing is new under the sun. All right, so now you're asking, so what? What does this have to do with me? Good, because I asked the same question when I was studying this. What Lamech's line demonstrates... Chapter 4, verse 25 and 26 is a lineage of sin. Moses elaborates on Cain's older brother, Seth, which means granted or meeting. Now, Seth is the catalyst for change. In Seth's line, a seed would come that would keep God's promise to provide one to destroy, the serpent that said was going to be crushed in chapter 3, verse 15. All of a sudden, now the promise comes to fruition. Eve is fully aware of this. Look at verse 25. It says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. She still knows the promises of God. She is very aware of what God is doing. Even when you see a society that is saturated with sin, do not forget that God is still at work. He is still moving. He is still active. It is not wrong to pray for our society who's saturated in sin, but we have to remember that there is a remnant that is here that is called and commanded to proclaim the truths of Scripture into the people who continue to promote sinful things. So here we see uh, that the fall doesn't destroy God's image. It continued within each line. So life comes... Life passes, which is physical death, and despite sin and man's shortcomings, Yahweh's grace preserves the messianic line. That's amazing. Now, I told you there's two Enoch's, right? All right. So Enoch, chapter 5, verse 18. Let's pick it up there. This is really interesting. Chapter 5, verse 18. Jared had lived 162 years. He fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Jared were 962 years old. I can't even imagine living almost 1,000 years. Like, I'm in my 40s, and I'm almost done. <clears throat> <laughs> when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and Enoch, I love this, I underline this in my text. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What a great passage of Scripture. This is an exception to death as his life highlights righteousness. A man who chose to follow the Lord instead of follow the people who followed themselves. Now notice, he is listed, you probably didn't count, so I'll count for you. He's in the seventh spot. And in all genealogy accounts, the seventh spot is a position of favor. Moses says that Enoch walked with God. And that word walked is the same word, Greek-wise, that Paul uses in Ephesians. It's a word for fellowship and obedience that results in divine favor. So, notice first of all, Enoch chose to have a relationship with the living God. What are we called and commanded to do as believers? Repent of our sins and have a relationship with the living God. He also was obedient. What are we called to do as believers? We're called to obey. And he was not, meaning he didn't die, for Yahweh took him. Only Enoch and Elijah fail to experience physical death. Now here's my question: I all time. Why? What about me? God, you come down a chariot. I'll go with you. You can even drive. And here's the answer: We don't know. We don't know about Enoch, we just know that his life affirms all those who walk with God in this fallen world will experience eternal life and not death. It is a foreshadowing of what was to come. And so, while a long life on earth is often a sign of divine favor, Enoch's was relatively short, especially compared to Methuselah, he lived a long time. But it shows being in God's presence is perfect and it's a greater privilege than having long life. This is the first guy who says, I'm going to choose to follow the Lord. I'm not going to choose to follow myself. Now, all these other people, what happens to them? I'm curious. Like, what happens to them? Is there a response to this wickedness that transpires? Yeah, absolutely. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. When man, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Again, I'm talking to the youth tonight about dating, so just pray for me because it still happens today. And they took their wives, any that they chose. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be numbered to 120 years. Moses said two lineages, Lamech and Seth, began to multiply greatly. So you got both male and female offspring, and let's unpack this verse a little bit better. Uh, Underline that verse, sons of God and daughters of man. This is really important for us in the rest of the text. The sons of God were a godly line of Seth, but the daughters of man were pagan Canites, not angels. Some people believe that these are angels. They believe that these were angels who cohabitated with women on earth, and that would, excuse me, conflict with Matthew chapter 22. This is the sin, ready for this, of defiling or mingling two seeds or lines when they took as their wives any they chose. Do not be, the Bible says, uh, yoked with a non-believer. You can't just go and take somebody who you want as a wife. Because they're attractive or whatever the case is. This is really that starting of the call to make sure that you are yoked. You are together with one who knows who the Lord is. Now, when it says they took their wives, it refers to permanent intermarriage, not fornication. Any they chose. They saw what they thought looked good, there's that word again, and they took. That is a pattern for sin outlined in chapter 3. That's what everybody does when they sin. They see it, first of all. They declare it for themselves that it is good, and then they take it. That is how you sin 101. You see something, and you say, I want that. God says, you don't want that. It's not good. He has put it in a different place. You say, I don't care what you, you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. They take it, and then, they, and then you take it for yourselves. All of these actions are driven by lust, not spiritual discernment. So what happens? So it says that God's spirit was removed since God's spirit. Now, that word spirit there, same word in Genesis chapter 1, ruah, that was uh, hovering on the source, eagle-like of the waters, That source of natural life, it will not abide in man forever. Or in other words, it will not endlessly permit to give life to those who are bent on disordering the Lord's world through disobedience. Same is true today. The Lord will not contend with man forever who is bent on disobeying him. So Yahweh then cuts humanity's days to 120 years. Now, for the longest time, I thought this is why we live to 120 years old. And I was totally wrong. This, when he says to 120 years, is the span of time between this proclamation and the flood. It's not human's lifespan. And the reason that he gives that is he gives a 120-year delay, allowing time for people to repent and provide a testimony of the coming judgment through Noah and the ark. He's giving people the opportunity to repent. Nobody asks God for forgiveness. In the book of Genesis, it never pops up. God's like, do you love me? And they're like, I don't know. And so here, God says, I'll give you 120 years to repent. And they never do it. Now, look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days... And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them, and these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, this, oh wow, there's so many books on this. This was like a four-hour delay when I studied this. I was like, there's a lot of beliefs about these Nephilim. Here's what I know for sure. The Nephilim were called heroes. They were giants, mighty men of old, men of renown. Some people, I'm going to do all this work for you. Here we go. Some people believe the Nephilim were fallen angels who procreated with human women or they were demon-human hybrids. Some people even think that these were demon who possessed human men. All of those views pose problems with the biblical text. There's just so much that like conflicts with it. Here's the other thing I learned. People love to draw them. Nobody has any idea what they look like, but oh man, there's a lot of people who drew these people, right? It's kind of like drawing Jesus. What did he look like? Nobody knows. So in context, what we do know is it appears that Nephilim were human giants as everyone in that time period was big, tall, and mighty. Think about this. There's no genetic like decaying that goes on here. So humanity is still in a pristine condition, if you will. So this explains why there were giants before the flood and also afterward. So genetic material obviously survived in the flood. So the Nephilim, what we know, were exceptional, but they were not superhuman. They were giants, but they were also destroyed with God's help. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, Joshua 11, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Why is that important? Because you got to understand the text. Because if you you buy into any of those things, your doctrine just runs off course real quickly. All right, so verse 5, and then I'm out your way. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a definition of our world. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man with whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. I am sorry that I have made them. But then comes Noah. But before we get to Noah, look at this. With the wickedness, which is a contrast of Genesis chapter 1 here of humanity, great in the earth, and every intention of humanity's thoughts and heart. This is a vivid picture of the depth of human depravity and a great definition of evil. Yahweh regretted that he had made man and it grieved him to his heart. Now that's the key to understanding this text. You've got to underline, circle, highlight, whatever it is you do in your Bible, the word grieved. Grieved is translated changed his mind and we struggle with that as believers. And if we study it appropriately, scripture rarely speaks of God experiencing any regret. And that's what is happening here. Because regret is a word that doesn't imply Yahweh feels like he's made a mistake, it doesn't imply that he wishes he would have done differently. He is just unhappy with man's current state. And he is so grieved and pained by the outcome of his creation, he is distressed. And for those of us who have have kids who have gone astray, we get it. You look at it and your heart just hurts. What did I do? It pains you to the core of your being. It's the same thing that's happening here. God is troubled. Humanity doesn't grieve their own sin. It doesn't grieve their disobedience. It doesn't repent. The Lord hates that. Just as much for non-believers as he does for believers, we have to get to a point as believers where we grieve our sin. We grieve our disobedience and it pulls us to repentance with God and with others. We have to get there because if we don't, what good is our faith? God says these people blindly indulge in every single thought, every single action, every single word. He says, I have no choice but to blot out man, because if I leave them alone, evil is going to continually come. It is going to continually infect and it will overtake the entire race and there will be no godly people left. No line to produce this already promised Messiah. But there's hope. There's always hope. In a world that's saturated with sin, verse 8 screams, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Whoa. May that be said about you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would help us To walk with you. Lord, we welcome your discipline this morning. We ask that you discipline us. We ask that you would help us to seek your favor and righteousness in this sinful world that is marked by sin and defiance. And Lord, we ask for those who don't know you as Lord and Savior that they would confess with their mouth that they are sinners. Repent. Turn away from that sin. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter into the family of God. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith so that no one can boast. Lord, so many of us have made that decision. And yet we find ourselves saturated in sin. So we repent. Individually and corporately. And we come before you. Asking for your help to find favor in your eyes. Through the acts of obedience to you. And to you alone. We want to be Enoch's and Elijah's. In this sin saturated society. And if we choose God our own ways. We'll fail every single time. But if we keep our eyes fixated on you if we stay focused on your word, if we stay constant in prayer, if we stay dedicated to fellowship, if we are living sacrifices, we can never go wrong. Help us, God, to find favor in your eyes because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and be obedient to you in all things. And all God's people said, amen.